greetings to our viewers in the DC area throughout the nation and the world. We're broadcasting from the Bethesda, Maryland area today. My name is Andrew Gelfusa and I'm the director of the World Trade Center, Washington, DC. I'd like to welcome you all to the webinar on energy, economic defense dynamics during a time of a pandemic. First, I'd like to thank all the medical workers and all the COVID responders as we're truly all in this together. This is an extraordinary time that we're in. It's times like these when you lean on your friends and pull together as a community to demonstrate resilience. The World Trade Center DC is the trade programming arm of the Ronald Reagan Building and International Trade Center. We have a congressional mission to promote trade and I'm here with our longtime partner, the National Council on US Arab Relations. Please keep an eye out for more virtual trade programs from us in the weeks and months ahead as we look forward to a return to the Ronald Reagan Building and International Trade Center. The Trade Center is operated through a unique public-private partnership between the business called Trade Center Management Associates and the U.S. General Services Administration. We're also part of the World Trade Center Association, which connects us to 300 trade centers in 100 countries around the world. And now it's my distinct honor and privilege to introduce a partner and friend, Dr. John Duke Anthony. For nearly 14 years, we've collaborated to host the annual World Class Policymakers Conference. Dr. Anthony is the founding president and chief executive officer of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. Dr. Anthony, I turn the program to you to introduce today's distinguished speakers and to kick off our energy webinar. Uh, Andrew, uh, thank you. Uh, Dr. Anthony uh, speaking here. Words uh, could not, do not describe how pleased and proud and honored and privileged we are to have uh, partnered with the Ronald Reagan Building and the International Trade Center under your, your leadership. Uh, we have both benefited. It's been a reciprocity of reward. Uh, for this particular event, which is experimental for both of us, uh, we are contributing at a time of national and international uh, uh, facts and fears. The National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations is an educational organization, and that's our mission. Just mission uh, is education. Uh, so we're going to turn this over to uh, David DeRoche, uh, whose graduate work has been at the University of London. He's an alumnus of one of our education programs uh, to Syria, and he in turn will moderate and choreograph uh, this uh, discussion, uh, which includes uh, Dr. Paul Sullivan, uh, who's at the National Defense University and who is a senior international affairs fellow uh, for us. Uh, Kirsten uh, Fontenrose, uh, who worked for us for more than a year and uh, is an alumna of our programs to uh, Jordan and Syria. And uh, in addition, uh, there's Mr. Philip uh, Cornell, who was one of the star speakers at the National Council's most recent uh, Arab-U.S. Policy Makers uh, Conference. I'll turn it over to uh, Mr. DeRoche. Uh, thank you again, uh, Andrew, and uh, regards to uh, Hosai uh, Rashid. Uh, appreciation to you, Jeff and all of your logistical, administrative, operational staff. David DeRoche. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. It's an honor to be here. Uh, it's almost become a uh, uh, platitude among public speakers to note the supposed Chinese curse may you live in interesting times. But we are in interesting times, and regardless of where the source of that what curses us now, where it came from, uh, the Middle East is an area that's challenged to deal with it. So as Dr. Anthony stated, we have three distinguished speakers here today. Uh, Dr. Sullivan, a professor at the Eisenhower School of the National Defense University. Uh, the only thing I will dare to speak for him is that he and I both uh, make our remarks without any representation of the U.S. government. Ms. Kristen Fontenrose, distinguished uh, scholar, at the Atlantic Council, Director of Regional Security Programs, former National Security Council Gulf Chief, and then Mr. Philip Cornell uh, with an extensive background in the energy industry working at 
the International Energy Agency, working at Saudi Aramco, and also now at the Atlantic Council. Rather than take any more time, it is my distinct honor to hand off to a man from whom I have learned much, but yet have much to learn, Dr. Paul Sullivan. Thank you, David. And thank you for also giving the usual caveat so I don't have to repeat them. I'm going to try to connect the development of the exponential pandemic with previous economic weaknesses and the rapid decline of China, the EU, East Asia, the US, and more via shutdowns, lockdowns, and quarantines. Then I will add in the ill-timed and ill-advised oil war. This is a nightmare for the world. It's a nightmare for my country. And it most certainly is a nightmare for the oil industry, most particularly for the shale producers that accounted for 70% of our oil production. The United States is now a net oil importer. We were having celebrations with our, our success from shale oil in our exports. And it seems the Russians and the Saudis didn't like that and they wanted to try to slow down or shut down our shale business. In the process, they did it at a time of weak economic times and likely harmed themselves more than us. There was a previous weakness in the world economy. The world economy was wobbly in 2019 and 2018, there were worries of recessions, uh, growing worries. The IMF downgraded growth rates. There was a trade war, remember that? That sounds like it was decades ago. It was less than a year ago. And the weakening was for the really big players. Excess production in the oil industry began before the coronavirus exponential pandemic and the oil war. The oil war and the pandemic made that fragility and that wobbliness much worse. The coronavirus allegedly started in January of this year, but many think it started in December of last year or even before that, and the Chinese were not exactly forthcoming with the numbers that they had or with the effect on the Chinese supply chains. And I'll get to those supply chains more as I move forward. These first shocks were in China, near Wuhan, spread to Beijing, and most through the center and the northeast of China, where many of the most important industrial areas for world supply chains can be found. Then it moved on to Southeast Asia, the EU, US, and then finally the WHO says it's a pandemic after it hit just about every single country and area except for parts of the Antarctic. Exponential hits for economies and for industries damaged the supply chains. Again, I will repeat that. The supply chains and the consumption chains. We're not just looking at supply and demand curves. We're looking at supply and demand chains. It's much more complicated. Curves are just lines that you learn in Economics 101. Chains are what you connect from something in a grocery store down the street all the way to Wuhan, China. An example of this is some of the antibiotics that we have in this country, 95% of them come from China, and many of them come from the Wuhan area. The importance of China early on became quite clear. And a lot of people didn't understand the importance of China in the supply chains for the world until this pandemic and the shutdowns happened there. Transportation stopped, manufacturing stopped, medicines stopped. The simplest things in our economy have connections throughout the world, connections into China, autos, airplanes, computers, medicines, clothing, Try to pick up an N95 mask these days. Where do you think it will most likely come from? As all of this was collapsing in China and many other places with the idle factories, the idle cars, the idle aircraft, and the idle trucks, the oil demand collapsed. Overall loss of oil demand could be 20 to 30% since this whole thing started. 
The GTP losses many are touting as being about 20 to 30 percent. I think that's an exaggeration. Uh, reports coming out for the last month are 8.7 percent for retail, about 27 percent for restaurants, and on average 10 to 15 percent for many other parts of our economy. Still, that's pretty harsh. And as this GDP and demand collapse is happening, unemployment is rising throughout the world, not just in the United States, in the EU, in the US, throughout the world. When unemployment goes up, consumption goes down, and investment goes down. When consumption and investment goes down, the GDP goes down. Those consumer chains are broken. Investment chains are broken. This also has an effect on Africa, India, Southeast Asia, and globally. There are multiplier effects when consumption and investment decline in the major economies like China, the US, and the EU. As all of this decline was happening in the GDP, there was a negative demand shock for oil, but this was not followed by a negative supply shock. What was happening is that many countries were producing more oil at exactly the time when they should be producing less. And as this was happening, the price of oil dropped between December of 2019 from about 55 to 58 into the 20s recently for West Texas Intermediate, and from about 65 to over that a little bit to the 30s for Brent mixes. The Saudi-Russian oil war was badly timed, badly advised, and made a bad situation much worse. It also magnified the effects of what was happening outside of the oil industry on the stock markets, investment, and consumer producer sentiment. So we had an off-balance oil market to begin with, and that war made it even worse. In some places, oil prices were being put into the negative zone. They were paying pipeline companies to take their oil. The Canadians, David, were selling oil for three to six dollars. Three to six dollars, when the cost of producing that oil in Canada is at best average $46. What's happening here is the shale producers, the Canadian producers, and other expensive oil producers are losing on every single barrel they're producing. They're making negative profits. And also, there's so much oil floating around, people are trying to figure out where to store it. Many of the storage tanks are filled. People are hiring tankers to store at sea. And that's brought up the price of a tanker lease to $200,000 a day. That's pretty shocking. To just simply store oil, that sounds like a really bad business plan. So storage, ports, pipelines. Pipelines can be a place to store them. They tried to pour it into petrochemicals companies, but the capacity was capped. China is now mopping up some of this excess supply as they're starting to come back. But in our country, in the US, and in other places in the world that are expensive producers, wells are being capped, fields are shutting down, shale companies have gone quickly into bankruptcy. They were in bankruptcy, many of them before this started, and this just was the straw that broke the camel's back. And the U.S. is now, again, a net oil importer. The companies were distressed before this, and now it's beyond distress. They're apoplectic. But another part of this is the valuation of many of the even bigger oil companies are so low that there's a risk for adversarial capital, meaning Chinese, Russian, and other competitor countries may want to buy our oil companies for very cheap, and this would be the time to do it. I hope someone is thinking within all this chaos, applying CFIUS and FIRMA to this situation. For the oil producing countries, low oil prices are going to bring them below their fiscal break-even points. For Saudi Arabia, their fiscal break-even point, the last figures I saw, it was $83 a barrel. We're now looking at about 28 to 32. And they've headed into the world debt markets, much like they did in 1980. Maybe Sheikh Yamani could uh, give some advice on this. 
he was fired because of this and sent to a wonderful retirement in the Cote d'Azur. But when we think about this, we also have to think of Iran, which has a $190 break-even barrel. Uh, Libya, $100. UAE, $70. Iraq, $60. Go on down the line. Nigeria, $139. African oil producers who are exporters are really getting hit by this. The importers of oil in Africa are actually benefiting from this to some degree. Now, the production break-evens are very different across different parts of the world and even in the same field, but I'll try to generalize this. For the UK, it's $44. For Nigeria, it's $30. For Canada, it could be anywhere from $26 to $46. Venezuela, $28. In the US, for shale, the lowest is $23. The highest is $80. So OPEC oil revenues are in collapse. In those countries in the GCC that hired a lot of expatriate labor, the longer this lasts, the more likely they're going to send them home, just like what happened many years ago when the oil price collapsed. They will be sent home to North Africa, Southeast Asia, and South Asia mostly, back to these moribund economies that are also being hit by the coronavirus, the shutdown, unemployment as they return. So if we add the coronavirus, exponential pandemic, the oil war, cascading shutdowns, decline in GDP, increase in unemployment. Oh, by the way, inflation will likely increase during this time too because of the shutdowns and the supply chain damages. When the government money starts pouring into these countries, there's going to be a huge surge of demand on certain supply chains that can't take care of it. And also huge government expenditures have to be paid for. Who's going to pay for the trillions that are going into trying to fix this thing up? And then we have to think about the following, focusing back to the Middle East, Iraq. Iraq depends very heavily on oil exports. Its revenues are going way down. It's in turmoil. The possibility that Iraq could fall apart and become more fragile is very high. Iran, my opinion, could head into a revolution or at least serious instability because of the loss of credibility of their leadership, increased unemployment, increased inflation, declining GDP, and the absolute destruction of the Iranian currency. Now think about Syria, Yemen, and Libya, or even Egypt. This is a fragile area to begin with. What kind of political and social instability will we be looking at in the future? How will that be driven by unemployment, by inflation, declining GDP? What happens to the credibility of the leaders, the hopes of the people that are really starting to get started again in a place like Egypt and elsewhere? Where do we go from here? Another part of this, there's a worry about opening up too slowly because of the economic effects, which I just discussed. But if many of these countries, including the big countries in the world economy, like the United States and EU, most particularly Germany and France, the UK, Japan, they open up too quickly, we could have a second wave of this pandemic. And imagine the psychological fracturing that could occur. Right now, people seem to be adjusting and in shock in many ways the ones that are lucky to have jobs. The ones that don't have jobs, like the poor casual labor in India and in China, they're trying to get into stuffed trains full of people who might have the virus. An important thing to look at for the future in the Middle East and North Africa and throughout the world as we're trying to dig ourselves out of this is, well, how do you restart an economy? We've never really had to do that before, even after World War II. It wasn't like this. After the Great Depression, it wasn't like this. This is a quick shot, a quick shot. It's a way to just kind of cut off things. If you take a look at the IMF charts for what happened to these economies, it's a direct downward line. That's a very rare moment. Also, we need to manage the expectations of the peoples of many countries, because if we don't manage them properly, 
and we don't restart the economies properly, and we don't get people jobs, and we don't build up their hope and their sense of a better future, the map of the world will change, people. Get ready. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sullivan, for your uh, cheery uh, outlook and for your uh, shout-outs to Canada. Let us now turn to perhaps a less contentious issue, the issue of regional defense, and again, drawing upon the uh, expertise both in the think tank community and in the U.S. government, as well as a long time ago at my institution, the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies. It's my pleasure to introduce Ms. Kirsten Fontenrose. Thank you so much, Dave. And I'd like to invite you and all our other friends on this call to my mother's dining room. Feel free to pull up a chair and get comfortable for this conversation. I'm gonna focus my remarks on where the impact of the coronavirus intersects with US national security most readily. And then we'll deep dive a little bit into the implications for US policy toward Iran and vice versa. So this list is not exhaustive, but out of respect for everyone's time here, I'll limit myself to touching on six areas that illustrate the near through long-term affronts to national security created or markedly worsened by the pandemic. And I've chosen to spark the solution-seeking brain centers of everyone on this call with these six. Again, um, many more could be added, but I, I wanted to hit the spectrum. So from those with the most immediate impact regarding tactical response to those with delayed impact requiring strategic response, we'll start with number one, which is competition for acquisition of personal protective equipment, um, which Paul touched on. And this is happening right now. We're competing with countries with more agile systems to acquire needed protective gear for our national responders. And when we don't get it, more Americans die. It's a tactical problem the US government is working to mitigate daily that of course benefits our adversaries simply by the fact that we are distracted. Um, second is the safety of our forward troops and the impact of a drawdown. Um, first on this, the Department of Defense is quietly bringing troops and trainers home from places like Iraq to avoid exposing them to the virus in high-risk countries. And drawing down our troops directly impacts our short-term ability to deter adversaries and argue for mission burden sharing from our partners who don't see why they should expose their personnel if we won't. It also impacts our ability to train and build the capacity of our partners to defend themselves, which then extends the time frame the US will have to defend them. So a midterm and long-term problem. Third is the resurgence of extremist groups and acts of terror by non-state actors. And we know that extremist groups are gearing up to take advantage of the distracted governments of their least favorite states. The uh, International Crisis Group put out a great paper recently called Contending with ISIS in the Time of Coronavirus that quotes from an ISIS newsletter that calls on its followers to act now and conduct attacks while the military and medical institutions of its enemies are stretched thin. We're seeing this bear out already. There was a, the, today's arrest in Germany and yesterday's attack in Egypt, just as small examples. So the fourth, um, the fourth piece to put on your radar is the crippling and suffocation of our defense supply chain, which Paul also touched on lightly. Each innovation in our national defense relies on a supply chain that includes access to finite materials. Without access to these materials, we can't produce and operate the things that give us a military competitive advantage. So um, think about where our tech sector would be now if Intel, an American company, hadn't been in the microchip in the 70s, for instance. So the supply chain that provides these materials is strikingly endangered by the pandemic in two ways. First, factories that produce and labs that, pro that process necessary niche materials are shut down, causing a lack of, uh, or I'm sorry, causing a backup in fulfilling our defense requirements. And um, what we're seeing is a, is, is a shutdown of this is also caused in second term by a Chinese strategy that is intended to cripple our defense supply chain. They've, this economic warfare strategy has the goal of choking our access to materials around the world. And this was in place before the virus broke out. Now that the virus is in place, it assists the Chinese strategy by forcing small businesses to close, by delaying government contracting decision on long-term projects in favor of the immediate response projects and contracts. And this puts some specialized businesses in the US in untenable positions. So the fifth out of the six pieces I wanna put on your radar is global energy financing. Sources of capital for traditional or what we call brown energy products was already shrink shrinking due to new European regulations that drive investment toward green energy and away from oil and gas. And I'm sure Phil will talk a lot more about this sector writ large in a few minutes. Um, the Gulf's ability to finance traditional energy projects will be hamstrung by the impact of the drop in oil prices on their available capital. So this leaves Russia and China in the game, um, but our partner's out of it. Europe's out of it and the Gulf is out of it in this scenario. So in order to keep demand high for their oil, Russia will focus on constricting foreign oil from reaching the market 
unless they hold the concession for it, like think about what the Wagner Group is doing in Libya or Mozambique. So what does this leave us? This leaves us with China. China is on the demand side of the oil game and will be the last man standing. So a Chinese monopoly on the future of oil and gas development is a strategic challenge for US national security for sure. And the last piece I'll put on the radar here in terms of national security risks that come from or are compounded by the virus is soft power. China is inundating the Middle East and the rest of the world with propaganda that claims that China has masterfully managed the virus and has experienced proportionally low death rates and is now sending out aid in a noblesse oblige to virus-stricken nations, while they also message that the U.S. is wallowing in death and chaos. So many countries are believing this, as crazy as it might sound to those of us sitting here. And this is greatly undermining confidence in the U.S. as a world leader and as a partner. So again, big strategic challenge. So let's turn now to Iran and talk a little bit about how is this pandemic impacting U.S. foreign policy and national security considerations with regard to Iran specifically? The short answer is it's not. Even the drawdown in Iraq was planned before COVID with the turnover of bases we're seeing in some of the remote areas in Iraq. The, the, concept of, the concept of operations, the concept for plans that you saw the New York Times discuss in an article about something mysterious plan the Secretary of Defense might have signed, that was a concept that will allow planning to commence for the military in the event that there is another big strike on the U.S. presence in Iraq. So it doesn't mean a strike by the U.S. will happen. It just means the planning is allowed to start. So this means that the potential for kinetics to reignite is still there, virus or not. Um, Secretary Pompeo and President Trump have issued statements or tweets that effectively signal that the U.S. is watching whether or not Iran mobilizes militias against the U.S. presence in Iraq and will then base a response on that. So signaling a warning, hey, your next activity, Iran, your next mobilization of these forces could result in a pretty big retaliation, even though you haven't seen us react so far because we've been trying to restrain and trying to figure out what we want to do about this um, to avoid some escalation that might get out of control. So the U.S. has taken several attacks in recent weeks without retaliating. Um, this is no longer a tit for tat. If the U.S. reacts, it will be in a way that looks like retaliation for each one of the malicious strikes chained together. It will be big. Um, so we're hoping Iran is catching on to that message. The hawks in the U.S. government are waiting to see if Iran mobilizes its proxies during this time of government formation in Iraq. Pompeo's statement this week supporting the prime minister nominee in Iraq was a way to make it clear that the U.S. expects Iran to sit back and let the Iraqi government get itself in order. If a militia attacks the U.S. prior to the U.S.-Iraq talks that are scheduled tentatively for June 10th to 11th, and the U.S. intelligence community assesses that the attack was instigated by Iran, then the hawks will turn to those in the U.S. that are arguing for restraint and say, we told you so. We tried it your way. Now let's try it our way and bombs will fall. So another thing to think about is the fact that even with the virus, we are not going to see sanctions relief by the U.S. for Iran based on this you know, humanitarian consideration. Um, and there are a couple of reasons I don't think people may be tracking to, to dig down into here for, our, for all of us. Not only does the U.S. administration contend that Iran's imports of medical aid have never been impeded by sanctions, but they point to the simple choice that Iran can make to bring relief uh, in, in terms of sanctions relief, which is to halt proxy and ballistic missile activity and freeze the nuclear program. Just call a halt to it. Watch sanctions lift and take care of your people. So the U.S. asks the question, why is Iran asking for humanitarian aid and some kind of irony when it chooses to spend money on killing squads around the, around the region instead of prioritizing the health and care of its people? Another reason we probably will not see sanctions relief is because of the recent Financial Action Task Force or FATF confirmation that Iran does not meet international standards for countering money laundering and counter-terror financing. So even if sanctions on Iran were lifted, what this confirmation from the FATF means is that banks still can't do business with them because the regime chooses against their own President Rouhani's advice to operate on the financial dark side. So has the virus impacted Iran's foreign policy toward the US? Kind of the opposite side of this coin, another question. The answer here is also no. The virus has not amended Iran's stated goal of pushing the US out of the region. This illustrates how sacred the Quds Force budget is inside, uh, inside regime circles. Even when faced with a budget crisis compounded by a pandemic, Iran is not only sustaining, but is ramping up its mobilization of proxies in Iraq and Yemen, while nobody is paying attention and nobody is holding them accountable. If I were Iran's strategic communications advisor right now, 
I would tell them to repurpose the PMF units in Iraq under their control toward the mission of virus response, much like the US has mobilized the US military and like the UAE and other Gulf nations have implemented civil defense programs to combat the spread of the virus, because this would make them look like the good guys. This would win them international goodwill. It would assist their pet political parties in Iraq with winning popular support at this critical government formation juncture time. I hope they're listening and I hope they take my advice regardless of the source. Dave, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, thank you for ending on a positive note. Uh, and I appreciate that. We'll see what's happening. Uh, finally, uh, underpinning everything in the region is energy and the role of energy. As Dr. Sullivan foreshadowed, there, this is a period of some turmoil that has been exacerbated. Uh, but how are we going to come out of it? And there's no better source for that than our next speaker, Philip Cornell of the Atlantic Council. Philip? Thanks very much, uh, David, for, for moderating, and thanks to my uh, fellow panelists and also to uh, Dr. Anthony for hosting us. Um, really, there are big disruptions uh, that are hitting uh, GEP uh, in the Middle East uh, as a result of this crisis, and it's really a double whammy. Uh, first, of the COVID uh, uh, crisis, and then also because of the oil price war um, that uh, Paul was mentioning. That has brought prices down 60% uh, since the beginning of the year with really big impacts, uh, both for uh, oil producers, but also oil consumers in the region. Uh, so what I wanna talk about is a little bit about what are really the economic impacts uh, of the crisis that we're talking about uh, throughout the Middle East, because there really is some variation. Now we talked about uh, the price war uh, that, uh, that was going on until, until recently. That was started in early March uh, when the existing OPEX plus deal uh, fell apart because really Russia walked away. Uh, the market took over. Uh, and Saudi Arabia dropped prices to where they still profited on each barrel, uh, but their expensive social contract meant that they were in heavy deficit. Uh, this was really a contest of pain that pitched Saudi production costs against uh, Russian budgetary resilience. They both came to the table last week because that pain, I think, became too much to bear with a lot of pressure uh, from President Trump. Uh, and the deal was done within OPEC+. Plus. Uh, to cut production by 9.7 million barrels per day, which is 9.7% uh, of the 100 million barrels uh, that were originally uh, consumed at the beginning of the year. But it's only about a third of how much demand has fallen in April. And so it doesn't come close to balancing uh, the market. So the recent deal uh, might put a, a floor uh, under prices, uh, but those prices are gonna continue to stay very low because of ongoing demand disruption. And also because uh, as Paul mentioned, uh, those filling inventories uh, that are leading to uh, a lack of space to actually store the stuff. Now, all of this is leading to uh, economic deterioration all across the Middle East uh, that can really uh, aggravate tensions in the region. And as I said, the effects are very different for oil importers uh, versus oil exporters. So for importers, uh, we're thinking about Morocco, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, Tunisia. Uh, the IMF, which just came out with uh, their projections for the region today, projects a 1% GDP contraction in, in 2020 and increased unemployment. And that's up from about 10% already in 2019. So low energy help prices might help these kind of importers directly. But in fact, trade and tourism and remittances are also down thanks to COVID. Um, and also because of low oil prices, because these countries are really reliant on uh, richer producers, especially in the Gulf, uh, for a lot, of, a lot of those remittances and trade. Uh, small and medium enterprises are hit very hard. Uh, and governments uh, there don't really have much firepower to help. From these importers, uh, we're seeing an outflow of liquidity to the tune of almost $400 million. And that causes currency depreciation and rising prices on consumer goods. And that all this leads together to cause real unrest and serious GDP contraction in some of the more fragile states that we're talking about. And particularly in, in Lebanon, where we've seen uh, violence in the streets and also in Sudan. And Lebanon recently defaulted on $1.2 billion bond uh, that further puts the economy in financial crisis, uh, raising questions about bank solvency. And so their economy is expected to contract by 12% this year. So that's enormous. It faces an economic, a financial, a political, and a security crisis. Now, stronger economies in the importers like Morocco will face their first recession in 20 years, uh, compounded as it happens also by drought in the country. Um, countries like Tunisia face twin deficits and debt uh, and have limited buffers. So they're really vulnerable to worsening pandemic that will hit sectors like tourism um, and also exports and domestic demand. Now, of course, there's the exporting oil exporters in the countries, and those also are divided. 
uh, into those rich countries, uh, particularly in the GCC that have significant fiscal buffers, then the weaker GCC countries, I would say like Oman and Bahrain, versus those producers that are really facing big problems uh, like Algeria and Iraq. So producers were already uh, in deficit uh, before the crisis because of those really high budget break-even uh, costs that Paul was talking about. And the IMF actually warned them that they only had about 15 years uh, of reserves left before this crisis even hit. Now, because of the fall in oil prices, that means that uh, they've lost about $230 billion in revenues this year. And that's caused a 4.2% contraction of their economies uh, expected in 2020. It was down from a growth expected over 2% last year. That's a big drop in the non-oil economy as well, in service and retail and hospitality that really hurts countries like Bahrain and Qatar and the UAE. And a lot of government money is now going into propping up these economies um, to the tune of $44 billion or 3.2% of the GDP, um, and as well as over $40 billion of liquidity that's been pushed in. And that means that there's about $110 billion of drawdown from fiscal reserves and sovereign wealth funds, whose assets were already hit very hard obviously by the fall in equities and value prices around the world. So those values fell by about $200 billion. So I think we can expect really big deficits this year uh, across the Middle East and even among producers to the tune of about 10%. And about two thirds of that uh, is directly the result of spending uh, on the crisis in order to uh, prop up the economies. And it can reach as high as 15% in places like Kuwait. The problem here is that raising taxes or cost cutting measures um, can impact social stability and government legitimacy in a lot of these countries. And so they're going to avoid that at all costs. Um, and anyway, there's still very limited space uh, to reduce spending. It's about 85 to 90% of the spending in these countries is already non-discretionary. But some of that's going to happen anyway. And there's already a 5% uh, uh, budget reduction in Oman. Uh, Saudi Arabia was already cutting its budget by about 3% a year uh, to try to reach balance. Uh, and they're going to cut a further 5% as a result of this. Um, so we can expect at least some uh, kind of uh, reduction in those spending. Um, Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, these countries have uh, significant buffers in place uh, for the immediate crisis. Now, one is a demographic buffer. Um, the job losses are almost all among foreign workers um, who can just be fired and sent home. Um, and so that's going to have big impacts uh, on expats from India and the Philippines, uh, Bangladesh, places like that. Um, but the richer GCC countries also have fiscal buffers. Um, and so public spending and credit growth um, can absorb some of these short-term COVID shocks, but probably at the expense of diversification and longer-term sustainability that they had been working towards before. So probably in the immediate term, as a result of this crisis in 2020, there's going to be less focus on economic transformation and, um, and diversification of the economy and less money for some of these big, let's call them vision projects, like Vision 2030 in Saudi Arabia. So in Saudi Arabia, Vision 2030 has already been uh, very expensive uh, since 2016 and has had pretty mixed results, uh, including uh, quite sluggish growth in 2019 and a limited impact on diversification, even though there have also been a lot of, I think, headline kind of social changes that we hear about a lot. On the economic front, it's been really a mixed bag. And where there has been a lot of that diversification, um, it emphasizes sectors like tourism and logistics. Uh, and we see that in places like the UAE and Qatar. And those are sectors that have been hit really hard by COVID. So the UAE, for example, um, was already pretty heavy in debt, about 50% of GDP, and exposed to bubbles in like equities and in real estate. Um, and the canceled events this year, really high profile events like Dubai Expo, for example, um, will also potentially have a really big impact um, on their economy. But I would say, even though that there's less of a focus on some of these diversification and economic transformation, um, in the longer term, I think this crisis in many ways, which I think we can talk about, is really accelerating history and it's accelerating a lot of trends um, that we had already seen. And it's going to reinforce in the Middle East how necessary structural reforms um, are to the region. So there was always going to be future oil shocks. Um, and that emphasizes the volatility of fossil fuel dependence. Um, and over the longer term, each one of those shocks is going to continue to lower the structural price um, of oil. Uh, as those lawyer, low, as companies and, uh, and, and including in the US shale patch, have to deal with these lower prices, they also can reduce their own prices, uh, their own costs of production, um, and make more efficient uh, value chains of their own. Uh, and then also for those oil producer countries in the Middle East, over the much longer term, uh, the long-term prospect of oil just is not good. I mean, the prices might go up in, in 2021 uh, when we see a rebound. Um, uh, but over the very longer term, I mean, it's, you know, if we look out to the 2030s uh, and the potential for peak oil demand, 
uh, they're going to have to find a different footing uh, for their economies. So structural change will really have to continue, and the crisis might be uh, a vehicle to accelerate that. But some of the producers out there don't really have good buffers. So Bahrain already had huge debt, um, and interest payments on that debt are causing increased stress on their economy right now. Um, Oman was already struggling uh, with a deficit, with low buffers, um, and they're going to be hurt also by uh, low gas prices, and particularly LNG prices. And so that's going to cause further stress. Um, and we talked about how they're going to have to reduce their budget as a result. Already before this crisis, Oman was relying uh, more and more on Chinese investment um, and also purchases of his LNG. Uh, and so I think we can talk a little, we've heard a little from the other speakers a little bit about how these economic shifts are going to change um, some of the dependencies on other uh, great powers um, that will uh, have an impact on, on, on U.S. influence. And so that's one I think that's worth looking at. Uh, we talked about Iran. Um, Iran was already obviously reeling from sanctions uh, as it came into this. And of course, it was hit particularly hard and early by COVID. So inflation right now is, at, is whopping. It's at a, over 35%. Um, GDP has contracted also by almost 30%, which is enormous. I mean, that's double the impact uh, of what sanctions had. So that may indeed um, uh, could limit some of its foreign activity. I mean, we heard with Kirsten that segments of that, of, of that spending are ramping up. Um, but I think overall, due to the sanctions, the difference with Iran is that it's already been adjusting its economy. So unlike some of these other producers, only about 30% of government revenues are actually tied to oil. I think the, gov the governments that we need to worry about are, are in places like Algeria, and, and, and we talked about Iraq, uh, who will really struggle the most to maintain macroeconomic stability uh, and to provide public services and support. So both were already facing street protests uh, before we went into this crisis, the new government in Algiers under President Tibbouni is, is, is pretty weak. Um, and Iraq is, is really hurting. I mean, 95% uh, of, uh, of its government uh, rely, uh, budget relies on oil. Uh, there's already a political crisis going on and the government is having uh, problems to provide power and healthcare. Uh, and that's been causing a lot of uh, street protests and unrest um, already since November. Uh, on top of this, uh, waivers uh, under the sanctions regime for Iranian imports of gas and electricity um, that are really crucial to uh, Iraqi uh, energy security and provision of services to its people are only granted by the U.S. every 45 days. Um, and so that causes a lot of stress as well um, on its energy system. Uh, and there's also signs that the U.S. is delaying some of the return cash payments uh, to the Iraqi government uh, as a result of its own oil production. So for a lot of reasons, uh, Iraqi proceeds from oil production go through America. Um, and for political reasons, those have been, those have been uh, blocked. Um, so the response from the Iraqi government has, to some of this unrest has been big public sector expansion, uh, increases in, in public sector employment and transfers and pensions. Um, and that's all at risk even more now um, with huge uh, budget constraints and, and the effects of COVID. So I think when we look at Iraq, I think there's a, there's a particular risk of fragmentation, of violence, uh, and of it becoming a, a, a field for proxy warfare. So the impacts across the entire region are really uh, severe. Some more fragile countries uh, could really risk violence and breakdown. And even in the richer GCC countries, the crisis is going to deplete cash reserves um, and eliminate uh, the kind of economic growth. I mean, 2020 is essentially a write-off. In principle, these things should, should bounce back to some degree in 2021. And, and as I said, I think we're going to see a lot of those trends toward diversification and transition actually accelerated. Um, but I want to use one example of that which is renewable energy and the future of renewable energy in the region. So let me just finish on that point. Um, this region was going to see uh, a, a, a large uh, planned increase in renewable uh, energy capacity, about 90 gigawatts over the next 10 years, mostly in places like Egypt and Saudi Arabia uh, and Morocco and the UAE. Now, the transition towards renewables in the Middle East is it's, it's no longer so much about state support or, or necessarily even about uh, sustainability. It's really just the most cost-effective way over the longer run to meet rising electricity demand um, that, that those countries are really facing a lot of. Um, and so that's helped to push, uh, uh, the need for renewable energy has helped to push power sector reforms uh, that can be difficult and costly. And, and we're really a, a part of those packages uh, of those economic transition uh, programs that have been ongoing. And those are gonna have to continue because countries uh, particularly now, simply cannot afford uh, to forego the savings that renewable energy presents uh, over the medium to long term. Uh, plus, as I said, the crisis uh, highlights the volatility of their dependence uh, on fossil fuels. Now, that being said, there are some uh, immediate headwinds that renewable energy 
uh, globally, but if in, in including in, in, in the Middle East region is having to face right now. Uh, some of those are, are supply chain disruptions, and Paul mentioned um, you know, how critical uh, those are. And those particularly are gonna delay projects uh, by something like two to three months. Uh, and, 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 and as well, projects that are kind of in the planning or tendering phase um, are very difficult to move forward under social distancing because they require a lot of face-to-face -face meetings. Um, but a lot of those problems are expected to pass uh, once economies um, and, and particularly transportation links uh, start to reopen. Um, another problem could be low fossil fuel prices, which we're uh, certainly seeing now and could see into next year. Um, and that could cause problems for renewable energy to compete, but forward gas prices and beyond uh, are gonna put uh, prices only down about a buck and a half to about $4 per MBTU. And that's still not competitive with some of the extremely low bid prices uh, for renewable energy that we've seen coming out of, of uh, the Persian Gulf in, in, in particular uh, and for solar energy. Uh, those really low prices are partly because of, of cheap financing uh, and that could be a problem. And, uh, Kirsten and, and, and Paul, we talked a little bit about uh, the effect of, of, of liquidity constraints uh, on energy investments. Um, and, and that could be an issue, uh, particularly, for example, in renewable energy, when all those supply chains come back all at once, there could be, uh, there could be some bottlenecks. And it's also governments are obviously in a worse fiscal position. Uh, and so they, uh, the, the, the utilities, the public utilities of the off-taking these kind of uh, electricity uh, could be a little bit less credit worthy. Um, but that shouldn't be so much of a problem in places like GCC, maybe in Oman, uh, uh, which would reinforce also China's role as a creditor and investor. And so I think that's something that we need to, to keep an eye on. So cuts in spending may be slow, particularly in projects that are directly negotiated or paid for by governments. But where we have competitive auctions and private capital coming in, um, I think the financing should still be there, uh, particularly in 2021. So my big takeaway messages, I think, um, would be that this crisis is really going to impact this region, especially where governments uh, are already in a really weak fiscal position. Places like Lebanon and Algeria and Iraq and perhaps even Iran are really places to watch for destabilization. I think richer countries in the GCC, as well as Morocco and Egypt, are probably going to pull through. Um, but the necessity for structural reform will really be underscored. So after kind of a respite for some of these uh, reform and transition programs, I think countries are going to have to double down on transformation and also on renewable energy reforms and perhaps with more urgency and seriousness this time and maybe less uh, on, let's say, big vanity projects. Uh, and, uh, and so that's something that I hope to see uh, uh, coming out of this. Okay, thank you very much, Philip, uh, for that expansive view of the challenges that we face. Uh, it really is, uh, all three of the speakers have pointed out that whatever we emerge from is going to be a brave new world, and it's not going to be like anything that we've seen before. The problems that we've had before are still there, but they've sort of metastasized uh, while we've all been hunkered down. They're still going to have to be dealt with, but they're going to have to be dealt with uh, from a position uh, generally of weakness. So these challenges are going to be quite emphatic. I think now we'll turn to our questioning, and I think that it's only fair that the first whack belongs to uh, the founding president of the National Council, Dr. John Duke Anthony. Dr. Anthony. Thank, thank you, uh, Dave, and uh, kudos to all of the speakers. You, you addressed um, uh, massive topics. Uh, from a massive um, macro and, to a degree, micro perspective. Um, lacking uh, for the viewership, and ourselves as well, uh, was a focus on the long-term strategic uh, ramifications and implications. Uh, you've addressed mainly, and uh, listening carefully, the near-term ones and the mid-term ones. Uh, but not the ones going out, except with reference to 2030 Saudi Arabia's uh, vision. Uh, but lacking also is the uh, wound throughout the region of the intra-GCC rift, where uh, Qatar is besieged by Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, Egypt, uh, and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, that has grave implications as does the question about uh, the FIFA, uh, uh, Global World Soccer Football Cup, uh, scheduled for 2022. Uh, uh, in both cases, the main uh, gainers thus far have been Tehran and uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, and by not focusing on the long-term 
context and background, one ignores that from 1983 to 2001, 18 consecutive years, every single oil producer in the region ran a deficit, 18 years. So that was a longer term period. And you had death on their doorstep uh, throughout 10 of eight of those years. There was a war between Iran and Iraq. And what if uh, an Iraqi parliament uh, modified elected? Dr. Anthony, you uh, took your finger off the uh, speaker. We couldn't hear you towards the end. Took your finger off the space bar. Okay. Still All right. Uh, uh, the implications and the answer to the question of what if Iraq's uh, elected parliament uh, echoes the appointed one, prime minister, in the last two months of demanding that the United States withdraw its troops from Iraq and uh, President Trump responded with, uh, there'll be sanctions, uh, American sanctions against Iraq, uh, like uh, one has never seen. Those were dire implications. Where are we on these matters? Okay, let's start with Ms. Fontenrose, then uh, Mr. Cornell, and finally Dr. Sullivan. Kirsten? Unfortunately, I haven't seen a change in the rift stance um, as a result of anything that's been um, caused by the virus. We would very much like to see that. I agree with Dr. Anthony that the only beneficiary of the rift has been Iran, and the U.S. government has been really clear with the quartet countries about that. And we would uh, very much like to see this. I mean, we definitely think that um, you know a unified Gulf is a stronger block from an economic standpoint and from a security standpoint, and certainly a better partner to the U.S. and to Europe when they are unified. Um, in terms of the long-term implications, we did talk about a few. For instance, we really worry about the resurgence of terrorism in light of the virus uh, with terrorist groups thinking that this produces a window of opportunity for them to create new space for action and leverage the distraction and the, um, the, the thinning of our capability in terms of military and medical institutions due to the virus. I, th I think that's something we'll be watching quite closely. The, the White House has, has always maintained that counterterrorism is not something we can let up on, even though it has become less trendy. And um, I think I think we'll be grateful that that's that that interest has been maintained, and that places like NCTC have stayed on top of their game. But it, other issues we talked about were like the defense supply chain, global energy financing, and things like soft power are really all long term. The defense supply chain issue um, impacts U.S. readiness, and when you add that to the fact that we're drawing down troops because because of COVID. You get a double whammy there in terms of the virus's impact on the U.S. ability to create deterrence in the region and to be ready for anything that might come our way. And then in terms of global energy financing, this impacts about every industry we're involved in and could really um, bring about some kind of, um, I'll let Phil really speak to the details, but you're looking at scenarios that involve things like U.S. economic collapse if our access to traditional energy sources is cut off before we have developed viable either biofuel, solar, you know, any other kinds of um, alternative energy sources. And then in terms of soft power, if we are no longer perceived as the reliable partner in the region because of recent U.S. policy decisions compounded by the fact that propaganda by our adversaries has made it look like we can't handle our own problems with the virus, um, then, then this impacts our ability to win and influence people, our ability to bring about votes that we want to see in the UN Security Council, our ability to work with partners on the ground, our ability to negotiate in our favor when it comes to basing, a lot of long-term impacts from this. Philip. Uh, yeah, thanks very much. Um, well, uh, Dr. Anthony, I think, raised uh, a lot of interesting points. Uh, and uh, What I'll say just about the GCC rift is, um, obviously, I think one of the big, really long-term impacts of this crisis is going to be its effects on multilateralism uh, writ large. Obviously, uh, the trend, unfortunately, um, that we're seeing is uh, unlike, for example, during the financial crisis in 2008 uh, that spurred a lot of movement towards creating, for example, the G20 uh, and pulling together uh, to, to, to solve these problems uh, is a lot more division and a lot of more fallback on, on national governments. Uh, and I think that's uh, also potentially the case uh, in, um, in the GCC. And it's true that uh, the, the rift with Qatar, uh, while it seemed to be uh, moving, uh, at least in a good direction at the beginning of this year, uh, pushed largely by Saudi Arabia uh, at, uh, in the context of its G20 presidency, 
um, seems to have, have, have been stalled as a result of this. Um, but uh, I think that, uh, that, that, you know, even though the political instinct is going to be to fall back on, on national governments, um, that, that uh, you know, betrays the really longer and bigger opportunity uh, and requirements uh, that this crisis is going to is going to underscore. Um, so I talked a little bit about how economic transitions uh, and move towards, for example, renewable energy uh, are going to be key in terms of repositioning uh, these the, the the entire region as it starts to see lower uh, inputs from oil. But another thing uh, that uh, is going to be critical is going to be increases in trade inside the region and, and particularly of energy trade. And I think we've seen a, a quite a bit of movement, at least uh, uh, particularly since since 2014, since the last sort of drop in oil prices uh, that, that sort of sparked some of these, these, these um, uh, reforms uh, towards more trade inside the GCC, both on uh, electricity uh, and also on, on gas. And so uh, I would uh, say that you know, as, as budgets are continually going to be under more pressure, and not just in the short term, also after, into the long term, that kind of trade and cooperation uh, is, going to be, is going to be more important. Um, we talked about, also, uh, Kirsten talked a little bit about what are going to be the implications for uh, energy investment. Uh, I think it's true that uh, low oil prices, uh, and particularly rock bottom oil prices that we're seeing, uh, are going to have a really big impact globally on, uh, on oil uh, sector investment. But I think a lot of those falls, unfortunately, are going to be not necessarily in, in the Middle East region, but in uh, countries like Canada uh, and Brazil uh, and the US, uh, where those uh, costs are, are, are higher. Uh, and uh, over the longer term, uh, that could pose, pose a risk. And I think if we look out maybe uh, four, you know, three, four, five years, uh, I think that that could lead uh, to also a price spike uh, as we see oil uh, demand growth outpace um, some of the uh, production. So even though we're looking at it now from a, a, a really a, a position of, 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 uh, of abundance of oil and, and not having enough storage, I think if we look three or four years down the line, uh, we're going to see the other end of that cycle. Uh, so I think in every crisis, it, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, every boom sows the seeds of its own destruction, shows the next bust and vice versa. Uh, and so I think that volatility is, is, is likely to continue if we don't uh, continue to shift uh, a lot of uh, consumption onto more sustainable uh, forms of energy over the, over the long run. Now, talking a little bit just lastly about FIFA 2022. Indeed, uh, I think from a political perspective, uh, the region was looking forward to a lot of really big uh, events this year. I think there were a lot of coming out parties uh, that were slated to happen uh, from Expo, uh, Dubai Expo uh, to the G20 uh, meeting in November uh, hosted by Saudi Arabia um, and then further down the line, uh, you know, even to the, to, to the FIFA uh, football uh, tournament. Uh, and I think uh, this, uh, the fact that these kind of uh, uh, large sort of part, you know, uh, uh, meetings are going to be at risk uh, will have a serious impact on, on, on some of the, 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 the prestige that, that had been building uh, in the region up to now. So I think that those are, you know, even, even though they're just meetings, they're serious things uh, uh, to look at. Um, uh, lastly, in terms of uh, what are the strategic changes uh, that are going on here? Uh, uh, you know, I, I think um, uh, uh, Paul mentioned uh, at the beginning adversarial, uh, adversarial investment. Uh, and, and I think that that's very true on a few levels. Uh, who's gonna come in and, and mop up a lot of the stranded assets uh, when things are over? Uh, I think that's going to be the case, uh, you know, whether you're talking about U.S. oil majors mopping up small uh, uh, shale producers, I think it's going to be the case whether you're talking about a lot of Chinese uh, money uh, that will come in and, and make investments uh, in, in, in places that are, that are suddenly seeming weak. Um, and I think it's going to be the case, you know, even if we look at in, in the American system uh, for some very large uh, investors and in tech companies with lots of liquidity uh, that are going to make a lot of big uh, uh, investments uh, over the next year or two. So that's really going to shift uh, the, the, the balance of power, both inside economies like in the U.S. and also between um, some of the major economies uh, abroad. And I think, yes, uh, a country like China, who's coming out of this crisis earlier, uh, that has uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, money to spend and, uh, and a Belt and Road Initiative project uh, that's geared up to do it um, is probably going to uh, uh, have an advantage out of all of this. And Dr. Sullivan. Well, uh, speaking along the lines that Philip had, low oil prices are the solution to low oil prices. 
because low oil prices cut investment. When investment is cut and rate counts go down, there will be a demand shock coming sometime in the future. If we're looking at the long run, that will happen. When that happens, there won't be enough investment, enough production to take care of that demand shock. So prices will go up. Oil has been boom and bust since the time of Colonel Drake in Pennsylvania and J.D. Rockefeller in Cleveland, Ohio. And it has always been that way and probably will be always that way. But looking at another side of this, the countries of the region have to hunker down with their finances. They have to have a new business plan. They have to look at things through the vision of human development and human security in the long run if they are going to politically, economically, and health-wise survive. The UAE has done wonders since 1971, when it was what? A beach with palm trees and pearl divers. Saudi Arabia as well. Many of these countries have gone a thousand miles. We should give them credit for that. But now the next thousand mile marathon begins toward human development and human security. And employment at home with honor. Education focused on the country health and health infrastructure to take care of the daily needs, but also when the next pandemic hits, and it will. Housing is a big issue from Saudi Arabia to Morocco to certainly Syria and Libya that has to be dealt with. New energy systems could be a way to develop new jobs and new education. Also energy efficiency. Uh, there's something out of uh, one of our national laboratories called the lasagna chart. And I can send it out to whoever wants to look at this thing. We waste 68% of the fuel we put into our energy system, and it's probably the same everywhere in the world. So new industries, get creative, creative thinking, new crops. Why are we growing sugarcane in a place right near a desert? Makes no sense. Sugar beets makes more sense. The water footprint and the carbon footprint of the region can be changed needs to be changed, and will actually save money and make profits. The energy water food nexus is gonna be a key to the future of the region. Using water more efficiently, using energy more efficiently, less food waste. Massive energy water and food waste throughout the region. Small tweaks can make a huge difference. The environment health nexus is the next start to this. But we have to take a look at our own country as well and our allies as they still remain. Isolationism isn't going to resolve the risks that we face. Isolationism is not going to resolve the risks emanating from the Middle East or West Asia. There are economies of scale and economies of scope when we work with our allies and partners and others to deal with the issues of many parts of the world. I know this may sound strange in this political environment, but increasing something like the Peace Corps or the work of USAID and its related organizations and the State Department and outreach to the world, how we're responding to the Belt Road in Initiative of China, we as the United States and our partners in Europe, we're doing very little. The Chinese are rolling us on this and we're letting them do it. If we really want a peaceful, productive, healthy, growing world, we need to be a part of it and we need to work with others for it. And we need to counter the egregious values coming out of our competitor states of Russia and China. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Sullivan. From the discipline of the dismal science comes a call to uh, enhance all that is good in human nature as a collective. It uh, was an honor for us to uh, have wisdom shared for us by our participants. 
Kirsten Fontenrose of the Atlantic Council, Philip Cornell also of the Atlantic Council, and Dr. Sullivan of the Eisenhower School of National Defense University. And as always, his remarks and my remarks do not reflect the opinions of any views or any agency of the United States government. And then finally, uh, thanks to the founding president and director of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations, Dr. John Duke Anthony, thank you for your time. And whatever awaits us on this strange new world that uh, arises post the COVID-19 virus, uh, the National Council and the Ronald Reagan Center and all of its partners and academic institutions stand by to shed light on whichever darkness we may find. So thank you for your time and your participation. And I look forward to seeing all of you at a safe social distance once this period of isolation is over. Thank you.